Okay, welcome everyone. My name is Dale McKinley. Uh, I am a research and education officer with the International Labor Research and Information Group, ILRIG, which is the host of this webinar. Welcome to all the uh, participants as well as the panelists, which who I will introduce shortly. We expect uh, more participants as we move on. Uh, in fact, we were oversubscribed in terms of the registration, and we were a little bit concerned that we would have people that would be blocked out, but that doesn't look like uh, it should be a, an issue, hopefully. So yeah, this in, the title of this webinar is COVID-19 Vaccines, a New Apartheid? Question um, mark. Obviously, we don't need to, I don't think, introduce the, the key issues here. Those will be talked about by the panelists, and, and many of you have no doubt been following fairly closely a lot of the uh, issues and debates uh, since the well since the pandemic hit us and certainly more so since the uh, vaccines became available and uh, the issues of uh, the rollouts. So without further ado, let me first of all introduce our panelists and give you a little bit of background to each of them. And then I'll just say what the panelists more or less are going have been asked to to address and then we'll hand over uh, directly to them. Uh, our program will be each panelist will have 10 to 15 minutes to, to give their inputs. Uh, then we will immediately open it up to the participants for a question, discussions. Please uh, feel free to put uh, questions uh, in the Q&A uh, or into the chat box, either one. And also, uh, if you so desire to uh, have a, a, to speak or to, to, to verbally ask your question, you can raise your hand and uh, I will recognize you and allow you to do so. Um, okay, so just to introduce quickly our panelists, uh, first uh, up will be Fatima Hassan. Fatima is a human rights lawyer and social justice activist who's well known in South Africa. And she's the founder of the Health Justice Initiative uh, for who she is representing today. Uh, she is the former executive director of the Open Society Foundation and has dedicated most of her professional life to defending and promoting human rights in South Africa, especially in the field of HIV and AIDS. She worked with the AIDS Law Project and also acted for the Treatment Action Campaign in many legal cases. Uh, Fatima has a BA and an LLB from the University of Witz and an LLM from Duke University. Uh, she previously clerked at the Constitutional Court and served as special advisor to former Minister Barbara Hogan in uh, health and public enterprises. Uh, she holds, she has had, she sat on many, many different boards, founding trustee of Indifune and Ukwazi, um, and also is the host right now of a special COVID-19 intellectual property related podcast called Access. Welcome, Fatima. We also have with us uh, Lydia Cairncross. Lydia is a medical doctor and health activist. She is a member of the People's Health Movement of South Africa, of who she's representing in this webinar an organization which organizes for the right to health for all through poly advoca policy advocacy and grassroots mobilization. During the COVID-19 pandemic, she has worked as a frontline doctor in the COVID services in the public sector and has run community-based workshops on understanding COVID-19 virus and vaccine literacy, and is also a member of the C-19 People's Coalition and People's Vaccine Campaign. Her medical work uh, in her medical work, she is a professor of surgery at the University of Cape Town. Welcome, Lydia. And finally, also welcome to Benjamin Kagina. 
Uh, Benjamin is uh, a, a, a previously, if you had seen the um, invitation, uh, Gregory Hussey, who is a professor at, at UCT, is um, Benjamin is, is stepping into Gregory's place. They're both from exactly the same uh, uh, initiative, which I will describe just now. Benjamin is a senior researcher at UCT, and his background training is in public health, immunology, and vaccinology. At UCT, he is with the Vaccines for Africa initiative, a group whose vision is an Africa free of vaccine and preventable diseases. Uh, Benjamin's main role at, at, at the initiative is to conduct vaccinology research aimed at improving and strengthening immunization programs across the continent. And his main research strategy is evidence-based vaccinology. Welcome to Benjamin. So what we've asked each of those, uh, each of the panelists to do um, is to address the following. Uh, Fatima will be first off and we've asked Fatima to address some of the ways in which the C-19 vaccines have been and continue to be developed and distributed at a global level, particular focus on public versus private involvement and roles, national and international initiatives, and associated financing and costs. Uh, we've then asked uh, Lydia to address the specific case of vaccine, uh, uh, the specific case of South Africa in respect of vaccine procurement and the overall rollout plan in the context of deep structural inequalities and the state of public and private healthcare. And finally, we've asked Benjamin to address some of the key sources of the widespread vaccine skepticism and opposition to vaccines and how best to deal with those. So sorry for that a little bit uh, lengthy introduction, but uh, without further uh, waste of time, we will now hand over to Fatima. Fatima, please uh, proceed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dale, and it's good to be on this uh, particular webinar, and hello to everybody. So in my 10 minutes, I'm just going to try and give you a snapshot of what we're dealing with. Um, and, and I'm glad that the title of this webinar is called Vaccine Apartheid, because that's just something that I've written about in foreign policy this week. And the argument really is that we're basically in a situation of vaccine apartheid or what we can, you know, what we also call vaccine nationalism, because the current situation is at uh, February 2021. So that's about a year into this particular pandemic, is that 75 percent of current supplies of vaccines have already been administered uh, in 10 very wealthy nations. And so in some places in the world, uh, healthcare workers have already been vaccinated and young people are being vaccinated and people who are over 65 are already currently receiving vaccines. In about 130 countries in the world, which are mainly in the lower income part of the world or what we call the global south, there's been either zero vaccines administered or very few vaccines administered. And I think you all know the situation of South Africa and, and Lydia will speak more, more about that. So that suggests that we have a real crisis. I mean, the WHO DG has called it a moral catastrophe. Uh, the Vatican has now come out to say that this unequal access is, is a real concern. We have many faith organizations, trade unions, civil society groups, um, you know, uh, basically saying that the current status quo is something that is not acceptable because it's leading to two things, a public health crisis, because you need widespread immunity so that you can actually get this epidemic under control, but it's also leading to, again, and we saw this with HIV AIDS, um, uh, a basically a vaccine apartheid or unequal access, which has severe equity and human rights implications. And so what, what we're dealing with uh, in globally is a situation where 
depending on how much wealth you had and how much power you had as a richer nation to either accelerate particular funding, research into particular vaccines, um, and able to secure what we call advanced market commitments or sufficient supplies for your country from multiple suppliers. So in some cases, some countries have five times more than they need or three times more than they need because you'll recall that nobody knew which vaccine would actually work, which would be safe and effective. And some of those vaccines only start receiving emergency use authorizations towards the end of, of 2020. Um, um, on top of this situation of vaccine apartheid or vaccine nationalism, which is quite a pernicious form, I mean, there's some places where there's widespread vaccination, but uh, populations are under the occupation. For example, Israel is considered the poster child of a vaccination program. Yet, you know, most, most vaccine supplies did not go to people under Israeli occupation or to populations uh, that are regarded Palestinian there. Um, so there's a real inequity in the way in which vaccines were once uh, sourced, but then also in the way in which they've been allocated. So this, this means that many poor countries and low-income countries, and, and South Africa is a bit of an outlier, and, and, and we'll come to that just now, um, is that most low-income countries were told that they should rely on something called COVAX, which is supposed to be this mechanism that is meant to address access issues for low-income countries. But aside from the lack of transparency issues and, you know, the New York Times is called COVAX a big black box, so you don't, you don't really know what's going on, none of the information is shared, there's three different pricing systems and three different economic classifications. Some countries have to self-finance their participation so they can access supplies first before anybody else. And some countries are, you know, low-income countries are relying on subsidized access. What we now know from COVAX, and COVAX released its, four, you know, its first quarter forecast about two, two and a half weeks ago, is that there's very few um, available supplies for low-income or subsidized country. And so the current estimate is that COVAX is only likely uh, you know, in, in, the, in the most optimistic scenario, only likely to support up to 27% of vulnerable populations in most parts of, of, of the low-income or world or in the global south. So that's hardly sufficient to achieve widespread immunity. So if a country is not self-financing, doesn't have sufficient amount of resources, has no political or economic power, which is, you know, a lot of countries in the global south, and you couldn't secure any kind of supplies through bilateral deals, then you have to rely on COVAX. And this is why the estimates are that by the time we actually get widespread immunity in the global south, could actually take three to four years. Why we are dealing with multiple variants and why we, you know, also trying to manage a, a rapidly mutating virus, and I think Lydia will speak to that. So you're basically uh, trying to secure supplies for bilaterals, which most of the supplies have been taken up, or you're relying on COVAX. And then if you're an African country, you're relying on something that uh, you know, our president basically set up when he was the chair of the AU, which is called the African Union Vaccine Acquisition Task Team, AVAR. And that presumably has now also dipped into the supplies in COVAX. And so we've been told, and obviously none, none of it has as yet arrived, except uh, for, for the 600 dosages that have now arrived in Ghana through COVAX. So the AVAT mechanism has said that they've managed to secure a billion dosages. Uh, 700 million is actually coming from COVAX, so, so you, you're getting it from multiple uh, sources. And then 300 million are presumably through bilaterals from the front-runner vaccine companies, J&J, AstraZeneca, and Pfizer. 
Um, of course, the pause in the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, does complicate things because the, the pillar of COVAX is actually the AstraZeneca vaccine. Most of the vaccines it's able to supply to low-income countries is meant to be the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, similarly, the AU deals include bilaterals with, with AstraZeneca or the sub-licensees, and, and there are two sub-licensees that are, because there have been market segmentation by AstraZeneca, that are meant to supply low-income countries, and that includes the Serum Institute of India and then a Korean company that has been given a license. So what, what do we know about the vaccine companies and, and what are the issues that we need to focus on? And obviously, I can't you know, give you a lot of information within the space of, of 10 minutes. So I'll just try and highlight some of the key issues. And, and Nadia will speak about the Johnson & Johnson study that's currently being rolled out in South Africa because we're still waiting, uh, in my view, we're still waiting to see what our vaccine strategy is in terms of selection. And new data has just come out in the last 24 hours about Johnson & Johnson. And, and, and Lydia will take you through that and what that means potentially for South Africa's vaccine selection strategy. But this is what we know about the vaccine companies. We are year into this pandemic. Within the first year, it was recognized that this pandemic was going to have a severe global uh, crisis, uh, not just a public health crisis, but it would impact um, you know, the world's economies. In some cases, it's, it's running into trillions. And that with repeat lockdowns and the impact on the economy, that there was a self-interest and many vested interests to make sure that vaccine research was accelerated in an unprecedented way. So what actually happened was that a number of governments, and there's a Lancet article that came out last week, which shows what we know about of um, publicly available information around the public funding and co-funding of this vaccine research. So when people talk about their vaccines, it's actually not the case. AstraZeneca partnered with Oxford University, Pfizer partnered with the German uh, state company called BioNTech. Uh, the Moderna vaccine was fully funded by donors and by the U.S. government. That's why we call it the NIH Moderna vaccine. So in multiple cases with some of the front-runner vaccine companies, there's actually been substantial amounts of co-funding and public funding and public participation, and in some cases relying on the technology of previous um, public scientists or public institution scientists, whether they were in the EU or in the UK or in West Africa, particularly some of the Ebola uh, research work. So, so one of the myths that we have to deal with is that this is your vaccine as a company. You are the only ones that it belongs to. And this is the reason why, of course, the TRIPS waiver and the, the requirement for governments to now step in and exercise their rights on some of these technologies is, is gaining momentum. And so that links to the issue of price. There's no price transparency. There's generally no transparency on the sub-licensing agreements. The, despite the fact that there's been significant public co-funding of many of these vaccine products, uh, there is a refusal to grant multiple voluntary licenses. And only when the EU had a supply crisis about three weeks ago did they actually then uh, you know, put pressure on AstraZeneca to actually open up some of its licensing. And that is how Sanofi and Novartis actually got into the picture around manufacturing. And there's a potential that Merck could also assist with some type of scaling up. I mean, while the EU was having that crisis, to in, you know, increase their own access to sustainable supplies, they decided to also put South Africa on an EU export ban list and some other countries. So, so there's a number of moving parts in terms of trying to figure out how we're actually going to you know, ensure meaningful and sustainable uh, access. Um, and then in addition to that, what we're seeing is that 
despite the fact that we're in a pandemic, despite the pledges of solidarity in the beginning, despite all the warnings from the WHO and the UN, and there's been you know, many world leaders who are speaking out about you know, the dangers of vaccine nationalism and vaccine apartheid, um, and the fact that many of these governments actually co-own the technology but are refusing to step in or what we call march in, what you have is a situation where the drug companies are in the driving seat. So they're deciding on the licensing, they're deciding on the pricing. But more importantly, and this is what we heard yesterday, uh, is that many countries are now hostages to these negotiations. You have to sign non-disclosure agreements. We saw the situation that unfolded in Latin America this week, in particular where, where, where Pfizer asked um, national governments there to basically put up state assets that's collateral uh, for waiver provisions or indemnity provisions, our own government yesterday admitted that it's going to set up a no-fault compensation scheme. So, you know, the, the way in which the industry is exercising power and is being allowed to exercise that power, I think really has implications for how do, you know, for, for many countries and particularly for democratic institutions or for institutions that are trying to build democratic measures. Um, and then, you know, what we're seeing in terms of the private sector, and, and Dale specifically wanted me to deal with that, and its involvement in vaccine acquisition or selection, is that the key public health principle is that there can't be any queue jumping. So in the same way that we're saying that the vaccine nationalism that's playing out between richer and poorer nations, we, we don't want a similar situation like that playing out in each particular local context. And so, so far, the global best practice has been that scientists are meeting, they develop consensus, and, you know, through their relevant expertise, they make recommendations to their government, and there is a prioritization and an allocation policy and plan, which different um, states within a particular country or different countries within a particular regional or trade block would follow. So you follow the best public health practice and advice around how do you prioritize, and that is the reason why you start with healthcare workers first, and then you start with people over 65 and people with comorbidities, and you don't start with the person who has the private chat or the person who has medical skills coverage or the person who has a lot of money. There is a public health reason for that in addition to a human rights and you know equity reason for that. And it's what we you know they simply call queue jumping or, or vaccine apartheid. So currently what's happening is that you know we, we've intervened for example as HAI in this case which every forum in solidarity has brought which basically says that in South Africa, they want medical schemes and private groups to be able to procure vaccines and start administering them in the private sector on their own. And that any, uh, you know, any restriction on the ability to do that is a restriction on their constitutional rights. And we obviously have a very different view about that. We've uh, applied to be as a friend of the court in that matter. And, and we're relying on the evidence of Professor Leslie London, Dr. Taleng Moffa King is a UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Help. But globally, what is happening is that um, there's actually consensus and an agreement that you have to have a national and a global immunization strategy that prioritizes the collective interest, that prioritizes equity, and that prioritizes public health evidence. And there's very few places where the private sector is being allowed to do its own thing 
and where in, in the rare cases where it is allowed to, to basically start procuring vaccines in a time of global scarcity and in a time where there is limited supplies, there's an absolute shortage of vaccine supplies currently in February 2021 because of the way in which patterns operate and you know the restrictions on manufacturing scale up and opposition to the waiver. So there's many complex reasons for why we have this self-created scarcity. Um, they still having those private players are still having to do it within the boundaries of a national strategy. Um, so I think Dale, let me stop there so I can give the other panelists a chance, and then I can always come back in the Q and A part. Thanks, thanks very much, Fatima. Appreciate that. Uh, thank you for very informative input. And uh, yes, I think there will probably be quite a number of questions, and uh, I've certainly uh, put down several and I'm sure that others have as well. Okay, we're going to now uh, shift over to Lydia Karen Cross. Uh, we've already introduced Lydia. Lydia, take it away. So thanks everybody, and thank you for the invitation to speak about this. There's a lot to talk about vaccines and what's happening in the country. So I'm going to try and focus in on, um, on some of the key issues and then, and then pick up on, on what questions come through. I just thought that it would be useful for us to first just very briefly um, remind ourselves why vaccines are so important. And I've been doing quite a lot of um, vaccine literacy training and not always clear to, to everybody why we need to vaccinate and why we need to achieve population immunity. So um, we have this massive pandemic, which has hit us very hard. After our first wave, there was talk about South Africa having been exceptional, um, that we had missed the worst of things and somehow our strategy had worked well. Um, and then we were hit by a second wave, which was much worse, worse with, with deaths, much higher than in the first wave. And there are very strong indications that there will be a first third wave coming through in the winter months. These are the things that we've been able to do for COVID. And I think it's worth just reminding ourselves. So we've had the lockdown um, with the massive social and economic impact and also a particularly militarized and authoritarian lockdown in South Africa. Um, we've had attempts at individual responses. So um, masking, washing hands, avoiding crowds and so on, which has helped to a certain degree. There's been a lot of community support for uh, victims or those affected by COVID and both the virus itself and also the impact of the lockdown, which has really, I think, saved many lives. Um, but what hasn't really happened in South Africa in the last year is real steps to build a better health system, um, to improve the interface between communities and the health system, and to prepare our health system in a real way for future um, challenges, which will be coming through. On the treatment side, while there are lots of drugs that are being investigated and being trialed and a couple that have been registered and some old drugs that are being repurposed, currently there is no cure for, for COVID. Um, and so we're locked in the cycle of uh, lockdown, opening up, COVID spreads, hospitals fill up and people die. Um, and really we need to get to 60 to 70% population immunity, otherwise known as herd immunity, which could either be through people acquiring the virus, recovering and having antibodies, or through another method. Um, and 70% of the South African population is about 40 million. Um, and with a 2% mortality rate, we would be looking at about 800,000 deaths. If we remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was quite a lot of discussion about whether we should just permit the virus to spread 
um, or whether we should try and contain it. And I think the answer is quite clear, uh, particularly the devastation of the second wave, that we can't let this burn. So vaccination is an alternative path to population immunity. And there have been, there's been massive global investment in developing vaccines, as Fatima outlined, that has been input not only from private industry, but a massive investment from the public sector as well. We need to be familiar with the language of vaccines. We need to understand um, the phases that vaccine development has gone through from preclinical trials, phase one, phase two, and phase three. I won't go into that much, but I think it's important as activists that we're able to answer some of the questions around vaccine development. And the biggest question that we come up against is, how is this vaccine being developed so fast? Um, and I've summarized it in five points. The first thing is to say that we had the scientific basis already through vaccine development for other vaccines. So both SARS and MERS were coronaviruses. Um, and vaccines were developed against those, and we had that scientific platform. And then the Ebola vaccine uses very similar technology to some of the, the COVID-19 vaccines. The second point, of course, is the massive investment, both public and private. The third is that the phases mentioned there were overlapped. So normally you would complete phase one, publish phase one, get funding for phase two, do the trial, publish, and then do phase three. But with the COVID vaccines, permission was given to overlap the phases. So they were all completed, but they happened, um, some of them simultaneously. There was a lot of collaborative work as well. And the fifth point I think is quite important in that the vaccines were developed during the pandemic conditions. So first of all, many, many people volunteered for, for the vaccines um, to participate. Um, as volunteers because of a sense of social responsibility. And secondly, um, because of the pandemic raging, the number of cases, the number of people who were being infected with COVID was very high. And so the trial results could be brought together much faster than under normal conditions when um, an illness is very rare. So the sheer uh, scale of the pandemic also allowed the vaccines to develop quickly. Long and the short of it is that instead of 15 years, it's been done in one year. Um, and from 290 vaccine candidates, there are about 40 or so that are in clinical trials now, but three of them have been registered with the FDA, um, actually four, I think, now with J&J, um, and seven are currently widespread use. And those are the names that we're all familiar with. And the three that are relevant to South Africa, really, are Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and J&J. Um, on the 17th of February, that's the day before we started our vaccination program, this is what the world map looked like in terms of vaccination. So um, they're measuring the number of doses of vaccine per 100 people, um, and you go from, from nothing to light green to dark green, depending on how many people have been vaccinated. And it's really a snapshot of, of what Fatima was talking about, this massive global inequity in access to vaccines. The, the, sub, the sub-Saharan part of Africa is completely blank, nothing there. Um, and yet also some of our middle income countries that are often, you know, our cousins or we're compared to like India and Brazil had gotten quite a long way along. So India, 8 million doses already, Brazil, 5 million. And that was just before we started. South Africa still had nothing. So we had quite a rocky start to our, to our vaccine rollout. Um, the first person to receive a COVID-19 vaccine was on the 8th of December. But by the 1st of January, South Africa still hadn't 
announced its vaccine plan. And if you remember those first few year, days of the new year, there was a lot of media coverage and a lot of criticism coming from scientists, the medical community, lots of political activists, the People's Vaccine Campaign, people writing about and asking for the plan. And on the 4th of January, there was an announcement with a broad outline of what the plan would look like. And in late January, it was announced that 1.5 million doses of AstraZeneca had been procured. When the AstraZeneca vaccine arrived, literally almost at the same time, the preliminary results came out that the South, the South African variant um, was escaping this vaccine. In other words, the vaccine was not working against 501YV2. There was only a 10% reduction in cases of COVID-19 in the vaccine arm of the study. Only 2,000 people, so quite a small study, preliminary work, but it was enough for, for that to be halted. And, and then came the J&J &J, um, vaccine into the equation. So J&J had also been trialed in South Africa, in Latin America and in the US. And the South African component of the, of the trial was about 15%. So a reasonable number of participants came from South Africa. And importantly, 95% of the um, of people who got COVID-19 in the South African part of the trial had the new variant. So it was possible to check whether this vaccine was working against this particular variant. And you've all seen the results, 57% efficacy against mild and moderate disease. Uh, the FDA now is reporting more 64%, but not great results in preventing mild or moderate COVID, but very good results in preventing severe COVID. 85% pre prevention of severe COVID and hospitalization and 100% reduction in death. Now we don't actually have, um, actually may now be in the FDA documents that, that were released today, the actual numbers and what was in each arm of the trial, but we know overall there were 43,000 participants, which is a, a good size. Now, in order to, um, to roll out a vaccine in South Africa, it needs to be approved by SAPRA. Um, and up to that point, only AstraZeneca had emergency approval, emergency use authorization, which takes sort of several weeks to do. And so instead of waiting for that time, um, what, what was done between the MRC and the Department of Health and SAPRA was to put together what is called an implementation study um, so we got research authorization for use of the vaccine, not emergency use authorization. That means that the vaccine is being rolled out to healthcare workers as part of a trial called Fusonke. Um, there is no placebo, so everybody is getting the vaccine. And it's called an implementation trial or a 3B trial because it's to test how the, the vaccine works in the real world situation, which is often different to what happens um, Within, uh, within a trial situation. So that's what it looks like now. So in the last week or so, we vaccinated 41,000 health workers, um, but also look at the numbers and how they've changed globally. So the, the pace of vaccination is, is very fast in, in um, the high income countries. Um, just to comment here, that the sheer insanity of the capitalist system really comes to the fore with, with this issue of the vaccine and the variants. Because what has happened here is that we've seen that a variant of the virus um, can be resistant to the vaccines that have developed. And the, the only vaccines that have been tested in South Africa, AstraZeneca and J&J &J against this particular variant. So the high income countries can vaccinate the entire population. And if they leave the virus 
to um, rage unchecked in the global south, um, new variants will occur, and these new variants could be resistant to the vaccines that they have used on their populations, and we could get back into a cycle of having COVID-19 throughout the world. So if it's ever a moment for sanity, this, this should really be it. Anyway, coming back to South Africa. Um, so this is the phase one, phase two, and phase three plan that was put forward by the Department of Health. So Fatima spoke about prioritization, that we know there's a global scarcity of vaccines, and so part of a national plan is to prioritize. So healthcare workers were prioritized as the first group, that's to stabilize the health system, to help to treat others, and also because healthcare workers are exposed um, daily in their work. The second phase would be essential workers, those in, in settings where many people live together, those over 60 and with comorbidities, and then phase three would be the rest of the adult population. There were no real time frames, frames put against these phases, but this was the overarching plan. So South Africa is implementing this vaccine rollout in a system which is deeply divided. It's divided into two health systems, a public system and a private system. And it's divided, a system which is divided on urban and rural lines, as well actually as provincial lines. So there are massive inequalities between the different provinces. Um, and there are a few key things we need to remember about the public and the private sector. Um, the public sector is serving 86% of the population with 52 districts across nine provinces. We've got about one third of the doctors in the, in the country. 30% um, of the specialists and 40% of the nurses work within the public sector, serving that 86%. And the problems of the public sector are very well known. In the private sector, three big hospital groups dominate the industry, that's MediClinic Life and NetCare, and they have about 80% of the hospital beds, private hospital beds in the country. We have 86 medical schemes. The vast majority of the health human resources work within the private sector. We don't often hear the problems of the private sector, but they are significant and apply here on the issue of vaccine rollout. So the system is based on fee for service. There are no outcome measurements. There's very little follow-up consistency and auditing of outcomes. Um, it's an individual and individualistic healthcare system, which is not promotive or preventive, and it's extremely expensive. So it's not very efficient and it's not very effective. Um, I just wanted to say some strengths in South Africa because I think that's important to mention as well. So we do have a good existing health infrastructure in most of the provinces, particularly the big academic hospitals and the urban centers. You'll see a lot of the this vaccine rollout that's happened. Uh, hospitals like Baraguana, Kroderskia are va vaccinating hundreds of people a day. And that plan was set up and running within a matter of 72 hours or so. We've got a very large skilled health workforce We've got um, thousands of community health workers, though they're underpaid paid and exploited, and we've got an active citizenry. So what do we need to do to roll out the vaccine to 40 million people? First of all, we need to buy it. So that's procurement, and then we need to distribute it. And in terms of buying at the moment, there's central purchasing. Um, we know about the 1.5 million AstraZeneca, which is being resold. We've got 20 million on order from Pfizer, which is due in February. 
um, 9 million from J&J, &J, and then the COVAX numbers are unclear. Um, some reports 4.3 million and others 12 million. We also don't know what's coming through the AU and VAT. Maybe Benjamin has, has some um, information on that. And then with regards to distribution, the distribution is going to be through the different sectors and so not only through public sector. And right now in terms of healthcare workers, 30% of the vaccine has been put aside for vaccination of private healthcare workers or healthcare workers working in the private sector. But they are coming through to state facilities or to the research sites in order to get the vaccine. So it's a central plan um, with private healthcare workers also being vaccinated, mainly GPs at this point. Um, Fatima has spoken about this issue of solidarity in AfriForum, taking the states to court over central procurement. And I think it's one of the key political issues of the rollout and of the moment. Um, their argument um, is essentially that the state has been slow um, and uh, delayed in getting vaccines. Um, they will not be able to effectively roll out the vaccination process. And essentially the private sector buying vaccine will speed up the process get us to population immunity, and essentially people who can buy the vaccine should be allowed to buy it, and it's unreasonable to restrict this right. But there are very strong arguments against um, this private procurement, and um, the reason I think it's important for us to have some discussion about it is that not only right-wing conservative people are talking about private procurement, many people are very worried about the state capacity, um, and are also many progressive um, activists are starting to talk about private procurement or um, decentralizing procurement because the state is failing in so many ways. But I think we need to argue against that and we need to fight for central procurement for many of the reasons that Fatima has already mentioned that I won't go into. Um, but fundamentally, the concept is that it's not that there is a lot of vaccine out there and we just don't have money to buy it or that somehow the South African state is just incompetent in purchasing it. The problem is a global scarcity of vaccine. And in the face of a global scarcity, to allow multiple private sector players with their own specific interests to procure vaccines could initiate a price war and could lock many people out of access who are not part of, say, a mining industry or a corporate sector where those corporates would go and buy. I do also think that it's quite arrogant of, of solidarity and AfriForum to think that these multinational companies would rather sell to them than to the South African government. And I'm not sure on, on what they base their, their claim or their thought that they could do so. I just want to mention that as all of this is happening, the budget speech yesterday was uh, a shock for, for those of us in the health system and I'm sure many others. So yes, there's a 9 billion rand allocation for vaccine rollout and 8 billion for COVID planning and treatment. But overall, there's a 4.25% budget cut over the next couple of years, including a cut on HIV, TB and malaria grant, a cut to the National Tertiary Services grant, and a cut on the Human Resources and Training grant. So while we are planning to roll out this massive campaign to vaccinate the nation, at the same time, we're cutting the health budget. So, the government in the state, the private sector corporate. And I, I remember at one point holding my head in my hands and thinking, you know, a pox on both their houses, because essentially we know that that at the moment the, the public resources are, uh, are held by the current government in power, um, but those public resources are not necessarily being used in a people-centered way. 
um, that our government and state have shown that they are bound by the logic of the capitalist system, as we see from the austerity budgets, the health cuts, the authoritarian um, approach to the pandemic, but also um, the way that they have not touched the private sector throughout the COVID-19 time, particularly around COVID-19 tests, where um, the private laboratories were essentially left to run unhindered while we struggled to roll out testing capacity in the public sector. Um, the advisory committees, like the ministerial advisory committees, are largely toothless. People that are part of these committees are unable to speak publicly. Um, they're not sure where their advisories are, are taken, um, why they aren't, and there's no accountability for decisions made. I sat very briefly in an, it was an ill-advised moment on a on a Mac, and really it's an it's like advising the king. Um, they kind of listen and nod and move on, and you don't know what happens to the to the plan. And we know the problems with the private sector and the corporate. So it's really a question of political power. Um, we can see that we need central procurement. We need to hold our state accountable, but that actually requires a shift in political power. The kind of vaccine rollout that we'd like to see would need to be transparent, accountable, no corruption, people be before profits, and a strong public health system and not nationalistic, in other words, no xenophobia and covering everybody. But the question is, how, how do we get there and what are some of the demands that we should make? Um, I think some of the key demands, aside from those that I've mentioned, would be to change the way decision-making is made. Um, we really need to challenge the ministerial advisory committees. There's one on vaccines, there's one on COVID, and there's one on social behavioral change. These are not democratic structures. They essentially gag the individuals that get onto them we need to have organizations represented there. We need to have community labor and health sector represented there. And they need to be accountable to, to their members. This is my final comment, really, that for me, this uh, pandemic has really shown the disconnect between the health system and communities, and that we can't um, build, we can't be ready for future health crises unless we shift and change that. So health promoters, community health workers and health committees need to be focused on and strengthened during this time. Um, that's one of our key lessons. I've got 10 points uh, for demands at the end, which I won't go through. Um, but just to say that um, the COVID-19 vaccine rollout is possibly the biggest single public health program we will see in our lifetime. And we could, through this program, entrench the old system. We could entrench the old inequalities and injustices in our health system, or we could use this as a catalyst to build a different kind of health system built on equity and on social solidarity. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lydia, uh, for what I think everybody would agree was an incredibly informative presentation. Uh, there's already requests uh, for all of your slides to be made available. I'm sure we can uh, we can organize that. Just to note that this uh, whole webinar will be uh, PHM is is also going to to ensure that this is going to be made into a, a YouTube video, so it'll be available for uh, others and distribution. Those who weren't able to uh, access the webinar. Uh, just to also note before we go to our last speaker that uh, the question and answer session will be after uh, Benjamin has spoken uh, when all of, and then we'll have a, a session for everybody. Again, I see that there's some already questions that have been put up in the Q and A, you can do that, or you can uh, at that point, raise your hand and, and we will uh, have that session. So please just hold on for a second. We now will have our last speaker, 
uh, Benjamin Kagina from Vaccines for Af Africa Initiative. Over to you, Benjamin. Thank you, Dale. So thanks for the invitation to, to this webinar. And I'm standing in for Greg Hesse, who is the director of Vaccines for Africa Initiative. So these are the three key issues that I'm going to tackle in this presentation. Just to discuss a bit about opposition to vaccines uh, and sources of widespread uh, vaccine opposition and, and um, perhaps give some insight on uh, some of the ways that uh, people working in the field are trying to deal with opposition to vaccines. Before I get to talk about those points, it's important to highlight some key successes of, uh, that have been achieved through vaccination. And uh, I think um, Fatma and, and Lydia, who spoke before me, uh, were quite clear on indicating the importance of these life-saving tools, which are vaccines, uh, specifically when it comes to COVID. But just to tell the audience that uh, outside COVID, uh, there has been some huge successes that uh, vaccination can be proud of. And a key one, which is the pinnacle of success of immunization is eradication of smallpox, which was attained in 1979. And subsequently, uh, there has been a eradication of uh, polio, um, specifically uh, types one and three uh, virus strain. And uh, if you look at other vaccine preventable diseases uh, like measles, uh, rubella, tetanus, uh, there has been a huge, huge reduction in the morbidity and mortality associated with these diseases. And this is largely due to uh, vaccines. At present, we've got up to about 26 vaccines that are used uh, globally and nationally. And some of these vaccines are used for specific regions, like for example, yellow fever, which is used in regions where the disease is endemic. So coming back about vaccine opposition or vaccine refusal, I think um, it is important to uh, make this clear that there has been perception that it's, it's a binary um, sort of classification, whether you belong to a group which accepts vaccines or you belong to a group that does not accept vaccines. Uh, that is not the case. What uh, research has shown is that you actually have a spectrum or a continuum of vaccine acceptance where on the left top, uh, on the left uh, side, you've got a small group of people who completely reduce all vaccines. These are what we call vaccine denialists, and they are absolutely sure they will not have vaccines. However much you engage with them, however much you show up to them, they're not going to change their minds. Then the opposite on the right side, which thankfully they are majority, they are people who understand the information about the benefits of vaccines and accept all vaccines. So importantly, there is groups and clusters in the middle of some people who refuse, um, but they are unsure about whether they should accept or refuse vaccines. And then there are some people who will accept some vaccines and uh, delay to accept or even completely refuse some other vaccines. 
And then there are some people who will accept uh, some vaccines but remain unsure why they are accepting these vaccines and therefore can either go to the right of accepting all or go to the left of accepting some and reducing others. And on the right side of my slide, I'm just showing uh, that information more in a more uh, pyramid uh, type of um, uh, projection showing how this continuum works. So one might think given the uh, coverage that COVID-19 vaccine has received that the issue of vaccine uh, opposition or refusal, it's, it's new, but actually it's not. Uh, this slide shows uh, uh, projection of opposition to vaccines uh, when uh, Edward Jenner was uh, vaccinating uh, people against um, uh, smallpox, and this was in 1800. Uh, this picture you can see uh, images of cows coming out of people's uh, bodies, and the thinking was that because of uh, the way the vaccine was made, uh, people may be uh, armed by those uh, or uh, made unsafe by those vaccines and start changing their forms and, and showing uh, adverse, serious adverse event of changing how they look. So this, this was as, as, as early as this, the start of vaccination. So vaccine refusal and concerns has been with us since the inception of uh, vaccines um, development. And I think one of the key issues which uh, has been raised frequently across different types of vaccines and has been very, very prominent with COVID-19 vaccine is the issue of safety. And it is important to mention that mostly, if not all the times, we give vaccines to healthy people. So understandably, anything that is going to be unsafe, being given to somebody who is healthy, is obviously a huge, huge concern. And whereas there is a lot of evidence and good, 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 solid data to show the benefit of the vaccines, it is important to highlight to the public that vaccines are not 100% safe. And this can be said to other medical uh, products that we normally use. Uh, in most cases, uh, the, the, the issue of um, safety that comes up is mild adverse events. And I need to mention that before a vaccine is actually licensed for use uh, by public, it goes through a very, very rigorous testing. And Lydia explained this in details when she mentioned about the basis of vaccine development. So what when, when the vaccine is released for use by the public, most of the adverse events that are picked up are actually those that are expected. And those are normally common vac um, vaccine-associated adverse events, which have been shown to not be of major concern. In some rare cases, there can be severe adverse events that can happen uh, following vaccination. And it is very important for authorities that are um, 
managing the immunization program to make sure that those rare cases of severe adverse events are investigated. And if they are found to be vaccine associated, that information is critical because then it can inform further refinement of the product to make sure that the product does not cause severe adverse events. There are some cases where severe adverse events are not generic. It's mainly because of um, genetic underlying conditions of uh, individuals, and this is why it is called rare cases. And there are some examples that I'm going to speak to uh, later, especially when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines. So coming to COVID-19 vaccines, uh, Lydia told us in the previous talk that uh, over 280 uh, million doses have already been um, rolled out uh, globally. And uh, what we can say so far is that this is perhaps one of the most um, uh, uh, advanced and very big uh, undertaking in terms of monitoring uh, safety of the vaccines uh, simply because of the rapid rollout of, of, of these vaccines. And, and uh, what uh, the results are showing at the moment after millions of doses have been administered for up to 11 vaccines that have been approved in several countries now, uh, these vaccines are safe. The adverse events which are mild that have been reported so far are what was picked up during uh, the clinical trial, and these are headaches, uh, a bit of chillness, a bit of fever, and obviously pain at the infection site, and this is completely expected. There are some rare uh, severe adverse events uh, like anaphylaxis, uh, which uh, has been uh, reported uh, to occur at a rate of 4.5 uh, five people per million uh, vaccinees. And this is the latest data from uh, US CDC. So um, it is important to mention here that if you look at uh, many online surveys that were done with regards to whether countries are going to accept or people from different countries are going to accept new COVID-19 vaccines, the issue of safety came prominently as a huge, huge concern that was driving negative sentiment towards people accepting vaccines. And people debated about that, some saying, look, you cannot do this kind of surveys in a vacuum because you don't have the vaccine yet. And preliminary data, what we are seeing is that actually when this information of vaccine safety is becoming more and more, uh, clear to the public, there's more and more acceptance of vaccines uh, by the, 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 the countries that have already rolled out. But we must also remember that it, in most countries, it is a first approach. And most of the healthcare workers who are likely to have more knowledge and understanding of the risk of the disease and the benefit of the vaccines may not be as much hesitant as the general public that will be reached at a later stage. I think another important uh, aspect that I need to mention here is um, uh, the issue of um, the rapid uh, development of COVID-19 vaccines, which um, 
Uh, again, Lydia mentioned the reason why it was possible to develop uh, COVID-19 vaccines at a quicker pace than what has been known to happen historically. And that rapid development was also flagged as one of the issues that people raise as concerns to making decision on taking up uh, COVID-19 vaccines. This is a very nice opinion piece uh, written by Jason, um, and they were trying to actually show the background to uh, the themes that are quite similar when it comes to uh, vaccine refusal, when you compare current situation and the old situation. Remember, I started by talking about uh, Jenna in 1800, there was still opposition to vaccines. And what uh, these authors uh, pick up clearly is that two key themes emerge when it comes to um, vaccine hesitancy. And the first one is the perception that the risk of getting vaccination or getting vaccinated outweighs the risk of getting uh, the disease itself. And uh, this is very, very wrong perception because we know very well the benefit of the vaccine. You do not want to get the natural infection because as history has shown to us many times, you are powerful. You are likely to die, likely to develop a, a permanent um, health condition because of infect, being infected by a natural disease as opposed to getting vaccination. So that is one of the themes that came up and one of the key drivers of vaccine hesitancy. And then the other thing that came up was the issue of mandatory vaccination, which is something that has been tested in many settings. And there are many countries that have vaccine registration requiring that, for example, a child before they go to school, they should show proof that they are vaccinated. And these are some of the things that um, people who are hesitant to get vaccines try to um, make a big, big uh, message out of them indicating that their rights have been violated. But it is very important to understand this aspect because as government and as vaccine um, advocate, we need to know how to engage with these people who raise these issues. Uh, and in, in most cases, missing from others. Social media is one of the biggest, biggest sources of uh, correct information as well as incorrect or misinformation. And um, this is a paper that was uh, published in uh, British Medical Journal, Global Health 2020, which tried to look at the relationship between vaccine disinformation and vaccination coverage. And here we talk about childhood vaccines. And they could see that the more you have vaccine disinformation, the, the, the less uh, vaccine coverage you get, indicating that uh, that space of social media is a very, very prime and fertile ground where incorrect information can be spread and influence the behavior of the public when it comes to making decisions on getting vaccine or not vaccinated. So what has been the field doing to be able to deal with uh, the 
voices of, of uh, vaccine opposition. Uh, so first has been to characterize what are the causes and what drives people to become vaccine hesitant. And there is this uh, model, which is called 3C model, uh, showing that if people see the risk of the disease is not that high, they would rather go for getting natural disease than getting vaccinated. And sometimes when vaccination programs are so successful and the disease uh, incidence and prevalence goes very low, complacency can settle in. And this is where people start refusing vaccines. And in those cases, you end up with epidemics. Confidence. We had uh, Fatima talk about... Thank uh, you, if you could just wrap up, please. Thank you. Yeah, talk about the, the, the this is the, the last slide, I think. Uh, talk about the pharmaceutical companies and signing the non-disclosure um, agreement with the government. There is that lack of trust between um, the government, by the public on the pharmaceutical industry and to some extent also with the health system when it comes to provision of immunization services. And then the last one is the convenience, uh, which means being able to quickly access uh, vaccines um, and immunization services. So other um, C's like collective responsibilities and calculating the risk of the disease have been added with this DC model. And I think this is my last slide, just to mention that the reasons for vaccine uh, hesitancy are diverse, complex, sensitive to social and political context and can vary with time. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Benjamin. Uh, appreciate your input. Uh, another very informative uh, input that gives us uh, an indication of some of the, the, the key issues around uh, vaccine skepticism and opposition and the realities of that. We have quite a lot of questions already uh, that have been uh, put into the chat, as well as uh, a couple of, of ones that are coming from Facebook. Uh, those are also been put in the chat. I'm, I'm going to uh, just read out a couple of these questions, and then we're going to just, uh, we'll, we'll uh, ask, uh, Fatima has indicated that, that she is going to have to move uh, at some time just after 5.30, but we still have time, so that's fine. Uh, if we go a little bit over, I don't think anybody is going to, to, to uh, uh, be too uh, concerned about that. This is a very important uh, uh, issues. So looking at some of the questions, uh, and then we, those of you who uh, in the uh, panelists who, who uh, want to answer these, I think Lydia's already answered a couple of the questions in the, the chat function. Um, question for Fatima, particularly from Kate Stegeman on Facebook. Any insight into how we navigate justified and important calls for transparency on vaccine pricing, delivery, et cetera, on the one hand, and the argument that non-disclosure agreements make some of that info protected from public scrutiny on the other hand. Many here will agree that not only is this info in the public interest, but vaccine research has relied on public investment. Big Pharma wants to shrug off requests for audits and Minister Marchese et al. dropped the uh, non-disclosure agreement one-liner in press events. So is there any legal wiggle room here? Um, and then another question directly for Fatima is, any insight into how we navigate justified and important calls, sorry, 
uh, that was the same, same one. Uh, there's another question from Empai and Kali. How do vaccines actually work? Throughout history, we've created vaccines that have saved millions of lives, but how did they actually work? Our bodies don't know how to fight a new virus like COVID-19. Uh, and then he goes on to describe, this is not only protects each of us from getting sick, it protects our communities. Um, and then makes some commentary. So I guess he's asking particularly about the, how do those work um, and uh, ensuring that vaccines are also safe, which is a question that Lydia answered from uh, another chat function. And then finally, from Eletu Inkala, I would love to know in the case of Ebola vaccines, was the issue of equity when it came to, was there the issue of equity when it came to vaccine dissemination the same as the apartheid witness now with the C-19 vaccine? And what can we learn from past response to high level health scares? So those are some of the questions that have come through uh, in the chat function. And uh, I'm sure there'll be some more from people who would like to raise their hands, but I'm going to hand over first to Fatima and then Lydia and Benjamin to address these ones. And then we'll have a second round of those who would like to ask their questions uh, via the chat, the uh, raising your hand. Go ahead, Fatima. Thanks, Dale. So I think that, uh, you know, that's a great question. And the, what we need to realize is that we actually in a moment of crisis globally and locally. And the crisis is not just one of a public health crisis, which I think uh, Lydia, as well as the other panelists, very succinctly kind of summarized the, the crisis moment that we're in. We're also in a crisis of secrecy. There's just very little information that's being shared. And that's why the issue around the interrogation of pharmaceutical company practices, as well as Richard Nations, has to be stepped up, both by our media, as well as our government, as well as civil society. So let's, let's deal with the issue of transparency of the agreements that we potentially may have as South Africa, as well as the agreements that we supposedly have with COVAX and with the AU. So my organization since November 2020, so that's a few months now, has been asking government for information through multiple emails, letters, correspondence about their plans. And we said to them, you're dealing with a situation of global scarcity. You're going to have to ration. Where are you going to get supplies? How are you going to prioritize? What is the situation given the fact that we have a two-tiered unequal health system and what are your plans? We received an acknowledgement of our correspondence from government to say that go ask the Department of Health, they're in charge of vaccines, even though we have in, um, uh, a ministerial advisory committee, including a MAC on vaccines, even though we have now an interministerial committee and we have the disaster management center uh, and, and the disaster is still in place. So, so the first problem in South Africa is that we're dealing with vaccine manufacturers, lack of transparency and a government that's allowing it and enabling it and a government itself that is refusing to share a lot of information in an effective way or in a timely way. And I mean, we must all admit that government's communication has actually been really, really poor and has been really, really weak. So we got to the point where finally the minister, you know, shared some parts of, of, of different PowerPoint slides and that's sort of regarded as the vaccine strategy, which, which Lydia has explained to you and, and how fast things are moving and, and, and the different variations. Um, and so our legal representatives have had to write another legal letter to government. And for three weeks, we haven't received a response. And it deals with the issue of transparency of these agreements and the pricing arrangements and, and, those, uh, and those relevant details. And we've said to parliament in particular, 
there is legal provisions in our law which says that when you sign an international agreement, like the agreement with the AU Avart mechanism, like with COVAX, because these are all sort of, you know, made up uh, private kind of uh, institutions that have been developed as a result of the pandemic, you actually have a duty to file those agreements with the Speaker of Parliament. And we're asking them, have you done so? We also have asked questions around why are you allowing a non-disclosure agreement in the middle of a pandemic? Why are you acting powerless? Uh, you know, in a country where we've got some significant constitutional rights and we also have some constitutional protections. So I think the problem around transparency of COVAX, of Avant, of the different companies is also in part enabled by a government that is acting locally powerless, but in Geneva is pushing for a TRIPS waiver. Um, at the same time in Parliament not passing the, for example, the Patents Amendment Act. So it's to me, it suggests a very schizophrenic kind of response to this pandemic, where the one arm of government doesn't necessarily know what's the, what, what the other arm is doing. But when you look at globally what's happening around transparency, uh, they're facing the same problems because what has happened is you've put pharmaceutical companies into the driving seat. You're allowing them to exercise that kind of control and power. COVAX has not answered, you know, any kind of detailed questions to most journalists that have asked them. The New York Times calls them the black box. Yet middle income, high income and low income countries must rely on COVAX for supplies and must give money over. And now we've discovered there are forfeiture clauses. There are penalties. Uh, so, so there's a lot of, uh, I think, uh, cloak and daggers in relation to a number of these contracts and in, in relation to a number of these deals. And remember that you're trying to get supplies from COVAX. At the moment, the, the pillar of COVAX is the AstraZeneca vaccine. So what happens to the 2.7 million that's been forecasted for delivery for South Africa now is a big question. Uh, the, the second mechanism you're dealing with is a VAT, and then you're doing the bilaterals. And in relation to the bilaterals, because of the different sub-licensing arrangements, you can only deal with certain companies. So we still don't know the real reason why we're paying more for the, or why we paid more for the Serum Institute's uh, AstraZeneca vaccine, what price we'll pay for the Korean company's version of the AstraZeneca vaccine in COVAX. And similarly, I mean, I think the, the AstraZeneca thing is a good example of, of how that lack of transparency on pricing and the differentials in pricing is actually playing out. The only reason we know that some of the prices the EU is paying is because a Belgian minister mistakenly tweeted the price list. That was the first time the world realized that even though these companies had committed to a low profit or a no profit pledge for the duration of the pandemic, that they were actually charging different prices because of these different sub-licensing arrangements. So the, the, the pricing transparency, I think, is um, like, the, like the supply crisis itself created. And, and I think that we have to be asking more questions. What has surprised me, and I've been writing about this a lot on social media, is that there has been an almost exclusive focus on government action and government conduct in South Africa through our media, particularly commercial media, very little scrutiny of the conduct of these pharmaceutical companies. There are some foreign media houses that are reporting on what these companies are doing in South Africa. Like, for example, for weeks we've known 
that Johnson & Johnson wanted the no-fault compensation scheme. For months, we've known that Johnson & Johnson only gave a partial license to Aspen for the fill and finish. And initially, the doses were only supposed to be meant for exports until civil society created some pressure. So some of those dosages may actually land up as part of the 9 million deal where some of those supplies will be kept in South Africa. So I do think that our levels of scrutiny need to be increased, particularly on that, especially because our money is paying for COVAX, our money is paying for the AU deals, and our money is actually paying for the bilaterals with the different companies that we've now uh, entered into. So, you know, I think that that would be my answer around the situation that we're in on transparency. And it links to my final point about how government is dealing with the pharmaceutical companies with kid gloves. In Geneva, it's pushing for a waiver, and there's a lot of resistance and opposition to it. But here in South Africa, it's almost like we're back in those HIV AIDS days again. There's no demands for compulsory measures. There's no pressure being exerted on these drug companies. I don't know where the price reduction conversations are actually happening. And, you know, like, like somebody said in the chat box, there's just a, a press statement of, oh, we've had to sign an NDA and sorry, we can't share information. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's one of the worst public health crises that we've experienced in over 100 years. And so if you're going to allow a drug company to behave in this way, in this time, then, you know, you can forget in future pandemics to, to having any kind of high levels of scrutiny or transparency of these particular companies. And, you know, uh, Dale, I think that there's a lot of bullshit happening. And so let's just call it out. We, we are being told different stories by government officials. We're being told different stories by the MAC, and we're being told different stories by the drug companies. We have to find a way at getting to the heart of what is really going on because we keep getting told different stories. And, you know, as civil society, we're sending letters, we're asking questions. There's very little meaningful engagement. It's almost like the Department of Health has forgotten what our courts have said, you know, what constitutes meaningful engagement. And if we don't have that, then we have to rely on the media to ask the right questions. But if the media is afraid of being sued by pharmaceutical companies, I mean, we all know what happened with Pharmagate, right, a few years ago. And if the media doesn't want to be probing that, then, you know, in, in, in some respects, then it's all left uh, in the hands of civil society and, and, and universities. Thanks. Thank, thanks very much, Fatima. And, and uh, this, uh, the, the questions are thick and fast. I'm going to hand over to Lydia. And Lydia, if you would, in the, in the Q&A, you've already answered Melissa Howell's questions, but I think that would be quite interesting, at least for some of the, the participants to hear if they haven't seen that. And uh, anything else you'd like to address that's come up? Go ahead, Lydia. Yeah, thanks, Dale. Um, I mean, some of the questions that came up in the chat were around safety um, and efficacy of the vaccine and how long the immunity lasts for. Um, it's so difficult this webinar because we, we, we're dealing with a lot of different issues. So I think just to say I've had the vaccine and I'm fine. Uh, I was very lucky to have it in the first phase of our health worker rollout last week. So there's a difference between um, severe adverse events and side effects that you expect to come from the vaccine. So I think when Benjamin was saying that no vaccine is 100% safe, what he was saying that all medication that we use has got side effects and the side effects of the vaccine and particularly the COVID vaccine are related to your immune response to the vaccine. So there's no virus in the vaccine. Um, there's no COVID that you can get from it, but your body mounts an immune response 
against particles within the vaccine which are teaching your body to recognize COVID. So things like a mild fever, headache, a little bit of nausea or muscle ache, common for a day or two and then disappear. Severe adverse events have really not been reported in most of the vaccines and specifically the ones I know quite well, AstraZeneca and J&J, have got a very good safety profile. In fact, the adverse events in both arms, the placebo and the vaccine, have been almost the same number. And there's nothing that's been flagged. Even anaphylaxis or severe allergic reaction has been very rare. How long does the immunity last for? It's a very common question. The honest answer is we don't actually know. So we only have data from when the trial started, which is actually under a year. Um, most coronaviruses will give you, if you have a common cold, which is a coronavirus, 18 to 24 months immunity. Um, we don't know if it will be the same for, for COVID. We know that um, before the new variant, there were very, very few people who got a second episode of COVID-19. And if they did, it was very mild, sort of like under 1% of people who had had it. Um, so there is some evidence that the immunity lasts for at least months, possibly a year or two. Um, we will only really know with time. And this also makes it much more urgent for us to vaccinate as many people as possible, as quickly as possible before we have the development of new variants. And it's possible that boosters are something that's coming um, on the horizon with COVID vaccines. There's also a component, which is the T cell immunity, also something that we need to grapple a little bit with, which is the part of your immune system that actually seems to prevent severe disease. So people keep asking, why does it not prevent mild disease, but it prevents severe disease? And it's thought to be related to your T cell immune response, which gives you a longer lasting memory immune response and helps to protect specifically against the lung and severe aspects of COVID. And then I just wanted to maybe comment a little bit on um, the issues of transparency and, and political accountability. I agree with Fatima, this is really the key issue and we need to think how we mobilize to support the demand to know more about what's going on. And I, I, I think we must challenge the MAC processes um, and we need to do that in a very forthright way. A, a ministerial advisory committee is not consultation. That is people putting forward their ideas and sort of dropping them to a hat, which can be taken out by the minister if he wants to use them or not. And no feedback on why some things are used and others not. That's not consultation. And that is not accountability. And that is not democracy. And, you know, in this kind of euphoria of getting the vaccine going, I don't think we must lose that critical aspect um, that it's great when good decisions are made. But if there's no accountability and no democratic process, when bad decisions are made, we can't do anything about it. Maybe just the last thing on the local production. I think that, uh, you know, who knows which, you know, which combination of vaccines we're going to use in the end. I think J&J is one dose kept at normal fridge temperature for now is a good option for us. The issue of local production, specifically because J&J is being produced in South Africa. We should really find a way to get past the capitalist logic that it's Aspen, it doesn't belong to us, and that they've already promised all this vaccine to another country, so we can't touch it. It's insane. This is a vaccine that we know works against our variant. There are many other vaccines that we don't know work against our variant. It's being produced in our country. We need to have access to that production resource and, and to that for the people of our country. And as a country, we need to expand our production capacity um, in vaccines because clearly this is going to be something that's going to be with us for a long time.
Thank, thanks very much, Lydia. And just finally to give over, I, I see the hands and we're going to get to you, Tanasha and Rihad. Uh, but uh, Benjamin, there's a, there's a question here from Kate, uh, which says, the Department of Health wants to vaccinate 40 million people in South Africa, uh, roughly 67%, but only 67% is 18 or over. Given that there will be adults who refuse to be vaccinated, will we need to vaccinate minors? Or is there any thinking on this yet? Uh, if you can just respond to that as well as possibly anything else that you think is relevant to, to, to your presentation. Go ahead, Benjamin. Yeah, Kate, that is, that is a great question. And uh, the answer is that um, the reason that at the moment the younger population are not targeted for COVID-19 vaccine is that safety in this population has not been tested. I know that uh, at a high level, stakeholders are looking at priority areas that need to be addressed uh, in, when it comes to uh, um, intervening to, to mitigate the pandemic. And, and uh, certainly that is one of the areas that has been flagged as the priority area to test current vaccines in younger populations so that it if the safety profile uh, shows um, acceptable level, then uh, they, they can be vaccinated. But in absence of that, it would not be um, a good move to go and just vaccinate uh, the, the younger population. As I mentioned in my talk, safety becomes a very, very key thing. And you want to test that safety is acceptable before you move into to that younger population. Um, I, I would also speak briefly about immunity, just to add to what Lydia has said, is that uh, in addition to not knowing how long it lasts, is that we do not know what to measure to say somebody is protected from getting COVID. That means correlate of protection. So there is a lot of work going on to understand uh, the immunobiology of, of, of uh, the immunity that is generated by COVID-19 vaccines so that once we know that this specific type of immune response that is elicited by vaccination produces this type of um, protection, which can make you be protected from getting COVID, then much more um, understanding about the duration and, and what to measure is, is gonna be very helpful. I think there was finally a question of somebody who asked whether there was an issue with equity when it came to uh, Ebola vaccines. Um, uh, I think uh, what I remember clearly with, uh, I mean, the difference between Ebola and COVID was that with, with uh, Ebola, the, the, the epidemic was much more localized to a few countries in Africa. And at the time, there were Ebola vaccines that were near ready being tested in, in um, late stage uh, clinical trials. And obviously the issue was why don't we accelerate the testing of those vaccines in those uh, countries that were experiencing ep uh, epidemics. And eventually that is what happened, which led to accelerated uh, licensure of uh, Ebola vaccines. Thanks, thanks very much, Benjamin. Uh, appreciate that. Okay, I'm just going to throw out, I'll come just now to Tinashe and, and Rihad who are going to ask questions, but there's two others just to uh, put in your banks for, this, for the presenters. Uh, one is from Ken Salo, uh, who's coming from Facebook. There seems to be quite a number of people uh, following us on Facebook. Any insights into the appetite for appeals to the inter-UN human rights regime? 
Um, and then also there's a question specifically addressed to Fatima asking for a brief explanation of the TRIPS waiver uh, as well. Uh, we'll just hold those two. Um, I'm going to now, uh, to Nashe, I'm going to allow you to, to talk. If you unmute yourself, go ahead. Okay, thanks comrades. Thanks comrade Fatima, uh, Benjamin and, and comrade Lydia. I mean, the combination of secrecy and corruption is such a difficult one to maneuver as activists. So I need to find out how best do we monitor the issue of corruption uh, in the vaccine procurement and distribution as we have witnessed uh, a lot of corruption under the PPE uh, procurement and distribution. Um, specifically wanting an advice as to how comrades uh, on how can we account, how can we hold government accountable, but also at the at the same time also holding accountable to the pharmaceutical companies who are going to make huge profits uh, in the in the in in in, in the global pandemic. <clears throat> uh, lastly, my last question is that how prepared are we for the rollout of this uh, vaccine? We have heard uh, on reports saying that provinces like the Northern Cape, they don't have proper refrigerators to store the vaccine. Are we, are we really ready for it if we've got these small vaccines and then we've got other provinces who, are, who do not have the refrigerators to store these vaccines? Are we ready as a country? And is this is the rush, rush process of having these refrigerators not going to lead into corruption as well? Thanks, comrades. Uh, thanks, Tinashe. Uh, Rihad, go ahead and ask your question. Yeah, uh, just on the, I think there has been a tender put out for refrigeration. I don't think it's insurmountable. Uh, I think the the problem that we face is very, is, there's no real political uh, uh, solutions uh, to this. And this pandemic has been unleashed upon us by our land usage and the rise of big agriculture and so on, uh, the ecological crisis, which itself is very much a product of the system. But we're now stuck with this uh, very real prospect. Uh, just reading today about the California virus the variant, and most worryingly, you know, people got people very worried is the New York uh, variant, um, which which looks very uh, virulent and uh, possibly more transmissible. So we are now looking at, uh, you know, five major variants uh, that, that have emerged over the last two, three months. The prospect that it will continue to mutate is, is one of the most scariest things. And I'd, I would come back to that. But, but what I do want to say is that we are very much you know, this third wave, if it does come, and let's hope it, it doesn't it doesn't come in April, May, the prospects are that it does come. We will not uh, be in any way um, get, have the vaccination levels amongst the, the high risk groups, uh, 10 to 14 million people uh, that are high risk of, of dying. Um, and we will look at a massive toll if that third wave arrives. Now, the, the, this variant issue is an issue 
which turn everything upside down, makes everything very fluid because all of a sudden everybody's trying to make new vaccines, never mind producing, uh, you know, pumping out the supply of the old stuff. You can't, can't be doing both. And th th this is going to mean that the global south remains very, very vulnerable. I was talking to someone earlier today who said, uh, basically, if we get to 20, 30% of our people on the continent vaccinated by mid-year next year, uh, we'll be doing well, given the, the fact that the supply problems aren't going to go away because of the emergence of, of all these new variants and how this will will mess up supply problems never mind the fact that these pharmaceutical companies uh aren't willing to to, to share the the tech transfer and the ip needed to, to ramp up production so Riyadh, could you just wrap that it's up, not looking up, good please? comrades uh and we've got to brace we, we, that that's it we're not looking good and we've got to brace ourselves for the probabilities ahead of okay Thanks, thanks, Rihad, for that comment and, and insights uh, from, I know you, Rihad's been very active on the, the people's vaccination campaign as well. Um, and I just, there's one other, before I hand it back to, for a final round for the panelists, there's another question here from Elroy, uh, Paulus, uh, he's saying, would it be correct to say the poor intergovernmental relations within national government, especially between the Department of Health and DTI, uh, trade and industry, is illogical and regressive. What can we do as civil society to demand policy alignment, oversight, and input for their consideration? Uh, so that's uh, the, the second, uh, I mean, the next question. Um, okay, Fatima, I'm going to give you uh, uh, one last chance to respond and engage, and then we'll, we'll take the other panelists and then we'll wrap up after that. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dale. I'll just try and answer the questions about the TRIPS waiver, the UN, and issues around uh, access to information and intellectual property. The first is the, the short version of the TRIPS waiver, which is really being spearheaded by the South African delegation in Geneva, which is linked to DTI. So Alro's question is relevant, and the Indian government, which now has over 57 co-sponsors. The AU this week has just supported the request for the TRIPS waiver. Um, and there's about 140 countries now supporting it and a handful of countries which are the, what we call the richer nations, including, uh, ironically, Brazil, our trade partner, are blocking it and opposing it. Uh, these are the very countries that are blocking it have actually started their vaccination programs and have secured multiple amounts of supplies, both through bilaterals and through COVAX. I think there's a certain uh, irony in that, and, and that's the kind of behavior that needs to be called out by richer nations and pharmaceutical companies. So what is the TRIPS waiver? Uh, unfortunately, medicines are still regarded as a commodity, like as if it's a PlayStation or a car. And so it's subject to international trade rules, and that means that it's subject to the provisions of what's called TRIPS, which is the World Trade Organization's agreement relating to intellectual property protections. So the TRIPS waiver is a request that's been uh, led by India and South Africa, which asks for a temporary waiver of some of the rules for COVID-19 related technologies, not just for vaccines, but including diagnostics or if a treatment comes on board. So for all related COVID-19 technologies and also related to trade secrets and you know a, a whole range of different uh, 
measures that uh, a waiver is being sought to make it easier for countries in the low income parts of the world and middle income parts of the world to be able to share technology, to be able to have the tech transfer, to be able to scale up manufacturing of all of those different technologies, just for the duration of the pandemic, which is why it's called a temporary waiver. Um, and that would allow countries to more easily be able to scale up manufacturing without having to worry that you're going to be taken to the WTO dispute body or without having to issue compulsory licensing measures in each individual country and without then the possibility of litigation by those drug companies in your domestic context. It was meant to be a simple, quick, easy, temporary solution for a global crisis, which started in October last year, but it's still being blocked. Uh, and if you have more questions around the TRIPS waiver, you know, I'd really suggest that you look at the MSF Access Campaign page. It has a lot of information on the current status. Uh, the next big day of action around the TRIPS waiver is going to be in March, in a few days' time, when the WTO General Council is actually going to be meeting. But the submissions made by the South African and Indian government requesting the TRIPS waiver and the background to why they are, are brilliant, and I really urge you to read it. And that's why this is an irony that we're asking for that in Geneva with that kind of, you know, political will and commitment and level of knowledge, but we're not doing the, the same year in Parliament with fixing our own patent laws or taking action against these pharmaceutical companies, which brings me to Parliament. We really believe that the oversight is minimal, it's very little, uh, even a simple thing like having oversight over the Solidarity Fund, the Portfolio Committee on Health hasn't necessarily done that. But what's interesting is that opposition parties have a lot to say about what's happening with the vaccine rollout, except for the EFF, which said that vaccines should be regarded as a public good. No single opposition party has made their position publicly available on what their stance is on patent monopolies in the middle of a pandemic. What are their stance on the non-disclosure agreements? What are the stance on the fact that we don't know why we're paying different prices for different agreements? Why are they protecting the interests of pharmaceutical companies? Not just the sub-licenses, but the AstraZeneca's, Johnson & Johnson, the Pfizer's, the Moderna's, et cetera. And I think more questions have to be asked of our opposition parties, because if they don't have a position on this in the middle of a pandemic, do they support the TRIPS waiver? Do they not support it? What, you know, what is actually going on uh, in relation to, to, to our opposition parties? In respect of the UN and you know going to different uh, forums I think the only thing I can you know add there is that the UN has been very vociferous in calling out the vaccine nationalism and vaccine apartheid have been issuing statement after statement declaration after declaration we've gotten to the point where the WHODG is also saying that we're now facing a moral catastrophe Dr Tony Fauci is saying that there should be a relaxation of the patent laws and greater manufacturing scale up even the Vatican has supported that particular initiative I mean and you know that some of the faith-based organizations in South Africa are doing that. So, so the priority has to be that we need to get more supplies into the market. And so we, we obviously can't do everything. We're going to have to figure out what's the most strategic intervention, because unless you have sufficient supplies of vaccines globally and for the region, you're not going to reach uh, global immunity. And I think Lydia explained why that is relevant. Um, and, and when we talk of transparency, and Dale, this is just sort of my last point, it's not just the transparency around the drug companies and the contracts and the deals and the budgeting information. I mean, yesterday we were told 10 billion rands. We don't even know how much of that is for COVAX. Who's going to pay the balance of the of the COVAX, you know, uh, bill? Who's going to pay the VAT bill? So it's really unclear how this money is actually going to be moved around. But in addition to that, we need scientific consensus. We need information so that the public understands why was AstraZeneca paused? Why are we doing a study? 
this kind of information should be coming from the MAC vaccines. And if the leadership of the MAC vaccines cannot bring scientists together, cannot have that consensus, is making decisions behind closed doors, then this entire vaccination program is going to be doomed and it's going to be doomed with non-transparency and a lot of distrust is going to actually result in even greater vaccine hesitancy. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Fatima, uh, and uh, thanks for fitting in a, a lot of information into a very short space of time and, and responding to all of the different questions. Lydia, I'm going to hand it over to you, and I, if you've noticed, there's a specific no further question in the chat from Kate uh, around uh, the MACs. Yeah, if you oh, can okay, see thanks. that question. Yeah, so okay. I just wanted to talk about uh, corruption briefly and are we ready? So, so Tinashe, thank you for that. And I think I have a, a deep unease about what is going to happen with the vaccine rollouts and corruption. And it's not just about procuring the vaccines, it's what happens with the delivery systems in the country. Everything from the needles, the syringes, the um, vaccination sites, you know, what we need is to know what tenders have been put out and who has been granted those tenders. In fact, we need to have a, um, a public dashboard on the vaccines, what's been procured, when they're being delivered, where they are currently, and who has been contracted to do various aspects of the rollout. And I think that's something that we should we should demand. Um, with regards to the MAC, um, I think we need to imagine, and I don't have the answer right now, we need to imagine a different form of um, participation. Uh, we need to imagine what participatory democracy would look like in terms of not just vaccine rollout, but all the decisions that are being taken by, by the government, which has really got a paternalistic approach to this. We've got this, don't worry, don't ask too many questions, we'll bring your vaccine to you. That is not good enough. Um, should the MACs be disbanded? Uh, I'm not sure if that, that call is, is useful. I just think that the MAC doesn't serve the function of democracy and participation from the general society. And it brings us to the core question of political power and representativity and what it actually means to have a democratic country, which, you know, we clearly don't. Um, and I think we need to come to, a, we have to have a collective thinking around what we demand. And for, for me, it, it, there has to be a bottom-up approach to that, which is where we, we hold um, accountability from a grassroots level and building it up and then implement it at a national level as well. Um, one of the big problems I think with the MAC as it's currently constituted is that it doesn't represent specific bodies. So for example, there could be an entire MAC on social behavioral change which doesn't have any social behavioral experts on it, for example. Um, so it's, it's put together in a very um, unclear way, sometimes haphazard or maybe a logic that we're not aware of. But even if it was perfectly constituted, it is an advisory committee which is held in secrecy um, and is not accountable to the organizations that the people may or may not represent. So the, the formulation is wrong and we need something completely different. Um, my last comment will be in relation to what Riada said about the kind of cold water that has been poured on the vaccine issue because of our realization that AstraZeneca doesn't work against our variant. Um, it's a real worry. And I think that, you know, we are going to enter a race uh, between vaccines and variants um, going forward. 
and how we can win such a race when we've got all these complexities around production, um, patents, the politics of it, and then just the sheer scale of having to vaccinate the global population is really daunting. So I think we can't put all our eggs in one basket. We can't only be focusing on vaccination. We also need to be looking at health system strengthening. So it's unacceptable to have health budget cuts. It's unacceptable for the Eastern Cape not to employ community health workers that have been working through the pandemic. It's unacceptable to have nurses that are unemployed. So uh, while we are focusing on, on getting vaccines out and rolling out, we need to do this in a way that strengthens the health system and exposes the contradictions of the capitalist system because ultimately for us to be safe we need to change the entire system so it, it that seems even more daunting but um I'm saying it's not just about, you know, getting shots into arms. That's a very important aspect of it. But the health system is absolutely critical and the whole of society change. And whether this is a moment where we can really imagine that break and that change is, I think, something we would, would like to believe and that we will need to struggle for. Thank you. Thanks, Lydia. And thank you also for reminding us of the systemic uh, nature of this crisis in so many different ways, uh, which is uh, obviously a longer term challenge. Uh, we're going to last give the the, the last uh, part to to Benjamin. Benjamin, there's one last question here in the Q and A session from Vicky uh, that you might want to also address. And she says, "What about the transparency on comorbidities in phase two rollout?" Uh, so that would be um, a, a question. So over to you, just to uh, wrap us up here. Thanks, Dale. I think uh, uh, Vicky. I think what has come very clearly from this webinar is that uh, communication and transparency are lacking, uh, not as optimal as we would want it to be. And um, I think uh, that is something that will be very, very critical for us to make sure that it's achieved. If we have to have a successful rollout, not even with phase two, but all phases and. I would want to come back to the issue of um, um, variant, uh, given that, uh, you know, this is uh, something that is emerging from different corners of the world. And uh, these, these pros and, and, and cons, I think on the pro is that we can see uh, second generation vaccines, which are now uh, coming to, 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 the, to, to the clinical testing. And, and I'm sure soon we will start hearing about third generation vaccines, which are going to be much more uh, resilient, or would I say much more robust in terms of addressing the issues of different variants. And also on the positive side, I recently had a meeting with, um, attended a webinar uh, with WHO and partners. And one of the key areas they were trying to look at is to see how much they can learn from uh, colleagues who do flu vaccine development, which need to develop new vaccine every season because of changing of strain. So I think there's a lot of learning that is happening across um, sectors. And this is bringing a very important issue, which is collaboration and using multidisciplinary groups in terms of addressing the challenges that are being faced. I think in terms of knowing what is what and what is not working is very important in terms of us trying to go forward with lessons. I think we've, we've uh, unfortunately, uh, Benjamin's connection there got cut off. Sorry, Benjamin. But I think you had addressed pretty much most of, of the uh, issues that were being asked. Um, so folks, 
we've now come come to the uh, the end of our uh, seminar here in the webinar. I keep saying seminar, but we're not in the physical room, but uh, in the online one. Uh, and uh, this, I think everybody who's stayed with us, thank you. We've uh, obviously there's some people we've uh, lost over the last uh, half an hour or so who, who didn't stay for the question and answers. But I think it has been a hugely, hugely informative uh, webinar. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot more today than I have in, in quite some time in terms of even after doing research and, and other things on this uh, issue and having written a little bit on this, but I hope that that's the same for everybody else. Um, we will make sure that uh, this is the presentations here are um, made available, the, the slides. Uh, for those of you who participated, we have your email addresses uh, through the registration process. Uh, the PHM, the People's Health Movement is, is uh, uh, thanks to them also uh, for ensuring that this, this whole webinar will be made into a YouTube video and will be available for distribution much wider. So once that happens and we'll send that out, please share it uh, with others and colleagues and others who might've been able not to make this. There were at least about 50 other people who registered uh, that weren't with this, but I think many uh, joined on Facebook as well. And thank you for doing that. Um, so just to say thanks to all the panelists again for taking the time uh, for the effort. I know it's a, it's busy times, particularly for healthcare workers and those of you working in the vaccine uh, arena. Uh, it's it's uh, very stressful times as well. Uh, much of what has been said today, I think, is very sobering. Uh, but we need to confront these realities in order to change them, both in terms of both at a medical health and a political and socioeconomic level. And thanks to all of the participants today for taking time to come onto this webinar. Uh, and let's uh, all together collectively take the struggle forward, make vaccines free and available for everybody. Uh, and hopefully we can in time, uh, not only defeat this pandemic, but defeat the socioeconomic system that has given rise to it and that continues to hold the majority of our population and humanity in misery and impoverishment. Thank you again for your time and good day. Be safe and go well.